The situation really very, very similar as in uh, CETA between the former Munich Agreement and exactly as uh, West sacrificed Czechoslovakia. We have very, very, very bad feeling regarding their commitment to our security and uh, we will not take any chance. That was Israeli Defense Minister Avigdor Lieberman speaking today at the Washington Institute. Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 42, for April 27, 2018. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. In a rare public speech in Washington, D.C., Israel's Minister of Defense shared his government's view of the whole gamut of regional challenges. Avigdor Lieberman has been Defense Minister of Israel since 2016, a member of Knesset since 1999, and he leads the Israel Baitanu Party. We'll hear his wide-ranging remarks in full after this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. The first voice you'll hear is that of Institute Executive Director Robert Satloff, who introduced Defense Minister Lieberman. After the minister's remarks, he joined Rob for a one-on-one conversation. Um, Our guest is somewhat of a a poster child for the Zionist experience. Um, He is an immigrant from the former Soviet Union, um, uh, uh, not born into a uh, noble and historic Zionist family of six generations in uh, in the Holy Land, but someone who came to Israel and created for himself a new life, um, um, uh, a career, and an important role um, at the top of the leadership of his country. Um, it doesn't happen very much in countries anymore. And this is, I think, one of the great embodiments of what it means to have the Jewish state. Um, our guest, Avigdor Lieberman, is the founder and leader of the Israel Beitenu Party. He has headed the Ministry of Defense since 2016. He has served in the Israeli Knesset, the parliament, since 1999, and in that time, he has served as Deputy Prime Minister, Foreign Minister, Minister of Infrastructure, Minister of Transportation, and Minister of Strategic Affairs. In other words, there are very few significant ministries in which uh, Avigdor Lieberman has not offered his leadership, his commitment, um, and his determination to support um, Israel. Uh, we're delighted that he's here with us. Um, I've invited Minister Lieberman to offer some remarks, uh, and then uh, he and I uh, will sit down and have um, an impromptu conversation um, about the entire range of issues facing Israeli security. Ladies and gentlemen, the Minister of Defense of the State of Israel, Avigdor Lieberman. Good morning, and thank you for opportunity to, for and to express my views. I think, uh, first of all, two remarks to your introduction. Uh, first of all, I'm happy to see that headlines today, it's not regarding Middle East, but Far East. And what we really saw, it's a very, very remarkable meeting uh, uh, in Korea Peninsula. And it's really something, uh, really good, good news. The second point, as you mentioned, I came to Israel. I'm not immigrant. I'm repatriant, 
we speak about repatriation, not immigration. And uh, of course, uh, when I came, I came to Israel, I was 20 years old. And the fact that today I'm Minister of Defense, it's maybe another illustration that Israel is more America than America, the sky is the limit. And uh, I really don't know any other country when you come as a young guy without background, without money, without language in one day. You stay in Washington like a Minister of Defense. It's really our phenomenon. Uh, some another short uh, introduction from my side. Uh, you know, for many years, the first issue in Israel and Middle East was a Palestinian issue, our dispute with the Palestinians. And it was real misrepresentation or misunderstanding that our dispute with the Palestinians, it's uh, a heart of the Middle East conflict. I think since the Arab Spring, uh, everybody understands that there are no linkage between uh, our dispute with the Palestinians and uprising in Tunisia or uh, civil war in Syria or situation in Libya or the complicated situation in Iraq or Lebanon. And uh, for Arab world for many years, the Palestinian issue was only a excuse to justify their uh, failure in uh, their domestic issues. And uh, uh, for them, it was very easy to incite crowds and to blame Israel in their uh, all domestic problems. Another remark, uh, because everybody uh, asks me, you know, how you see what will be in the Middle East, uh, if um, we can hope uh, to achieve one day real peace in the Middle East. I think uh, it's really something uh, non-realistic. I think it's illusion and uh, the biggest problem of the Middle East, it's not Israel, but it's Arab society. At least in my opinion, uh, what we see in the Arab world, I don't see even two states that they are living in peace uh, one with uh, others, one with others. It's 99% uh, uh, of all conflicts, frictions, and bloodshed in the Middle East. Uh, it's not between Israel and the Arab states, not between Jews and Muslims, but between Muslims themselves, not... Uh, uh, without any connection to Israel. Only in Syria in the last years, more than half million people killed, slaughtered. Every day, hundreds of people killed and injured in all Middle East, in Libya, in Yemen, uh, in Sudan, in uh, Syria, in Iraq. Who cares? You can see the uh, really the news in the world, in all channels. You can see about football, basketball, uh, 
some other news, but you cannot see even one uh, report about hundreds of people killed in the Middle East every day. The main problem uh, of Middle East, in my opinion, of the Arab society, is that the middle class doesn't exist. It's the main reason. Because for peaceful policy, for readiness to coexist, to accept uh, different people, different states, you need a strong middle class. If I take, for example, most successful countries in the world, like Norway, Switzerland, 90% of population, very strong and successful middle class. If and maybe 3%, uh, 2-3% tycoons and the others, uh, who knows. Uh, in the Arab society, the situation completely different. 90% of population, uh, really, they are suffering poverty, misery, no hope. And it's a very young uh, society. If you take, for example, you will compare the demographic demography of Arab Muslim states and European states in completely different demography. In the Arab world, uh, 70% of people very young, 35 years old and younger. And uh, with 50% uh, of unemployment among uh, young population, it's a really crazy situation. And uh, again, Israel proved, uh, we proved our desire to achieve real peace, we sacrificed, uh, we gave up uh, uh, Sinai and we signed a peace agreement with Egypt, uh, we gave up uh, half of Judea and Samaria, we withdrew from Gaza Strip until the very last inch according to the 67 line and we see that result that uh, we have missiles uh, on Israel and everyday provocations. I cannot understand what demand we have from the Gaza Strip. We evacuated 21 flourishing settlements. We evacuated uh, more than 10,000 Jews back to Israel. We're ready to establish uh, industrial zones to create uh, jobs for people in Gaza. And by the way, I remember, you know, my last conversation with our late Prime Minister Ariel Sharon before disengagement. And I asked Arik, what are you doing? And he explained to me that he wants to create an opportunity for Palestinian people to prove that they can lead their own state. And he me, you will see one day Gaza Strip will be a Singapore of the Middle East. And we see what happened with the Singapore of the Middle East. And uh, today, when we speak about uh, tough situation in Gaza Strip, I expect that the people will ask uh, what the reasons for this tough situation within Gaza Strip. You know, there are two reasons. First of all, uh, Hamas, they are collecting taxes from the 
people of Gaza, and they invest all of this money in tunnels and uh, missiles. And they're not ready to divert even one dollar from missiles and tunnels uh, to the benefit of uh, people, uh, not uh, to invest money in electricity, in water management, uh, medicine, nothing. For them, all those money, it's uh, only to destroy the state of Israel. And the second reason that uh, Mahmoud Abbas decided to stop every funding to every, uh, any support to Gaza Strip, include salary, uh, payment for electricity, water, etc. And <laughs> they try also the last uh, frictions on our border. I am not sure if people really pay all attention. What their slogans, what their demands, not to live uh, side by side with Israel in peace, not to create jobs, but to destroy the state of Israel. They are speaking to uh, about a law of return to take all refugees to Tel Aviv, to Haifa, to Tzfat. Not a demand to, for negotiations for peace. Opposite. And of course, uh, you mentioned uh, all challenges that we are facing around all our borders. You know, we're maybe f we are facing more challenges that, uh, than any other country in the world. In uh, south, of course, Gaza Strip, we have Hamas and Islamic Jihad. In Sinai, we have uh, Islamic State. Uh, Lebanon, we have uh, Hezbollah. In Syria, we have Al-Qaeda. And behind all of them, Iranians. And it's, uh, of course, uh, our reality. We are trying to manage the situation. We're trying to create uh, modern society, moderate society. And uh, in the same time to to protect ourselves, it's really a huge uh, challenge. And uh, I think that uh, up until uh, now we succeeded with all challenges. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Mr. Minister, thank you very much for those opening remarks. Um, let me begin with your trip here to Washington, uh, it's an appropriate pl place to start. You met in the last, uh, last couple of days with very senior American officials, the White House, the Pentagon. Um, uh, what can you come away with? What do you return to Israel with in terms of uh, um, uh, your sense from the administration about uh, understanding your um, security challenges and any new understandings with Washington and how to address them? Uh, and I will specifically uh, focus on the Syria front um, in this regard. First of all, as always, we have really very, very good friends in Washington. And uh, it's not only political uh, interest, it's not only security. I think that, the, first of all, uh, the main reason that uh, Two states uh, were sharing the same values, the strong commitment to democracy, to freedom of speech, 
and uh, especially in Washington, uh, people understand that in middle that in the Middle East, to keep democracy, it's also another very very big challenge. And uh, as I mentioned, we're open society. Sometimes I feel, especially with our press, not only with my capacity, but with our press, that we're more America than America. And uh, it's really, it's a real friendship. I think that there is also a deep understanding how big uh, the challenge uh, for Israel to handle in the same time with all threats that uh, you mentioned and now I mentioned, especially with Syria. We we'll see the atrocities in Syria, this kind of regime that really killed uh, his own people. Uh, and we know the other clients, especially Hezbollah uh, and uh, Iran, and uh, everybody asked me, and what with the Russians? First of all, the Russians, of course, uh, they have their priorities and their interest. The difference that the Russians really, they don't uh, uh, hate Israel, they don't uh, think that to destroy the state of Israel is the right policy. And uh, opposite Hezbollah, Iran, every day you see another uh, statements that their intentions, their policies, their goal and their policies to destroy the state uh, of Israel. And the Russians have their own interests, it's not our interest. But uh, we try to uh, keep open uh, channels, open line, deconfliction, uh, what we call deconfliction policy, we try to avoid their direct uh, conflict with Russians, frictions. We have enough uh, problems and enemies, and uh, it uh, it's work. It it, it works, and no no doubt. And the same uh, Americans, also the United States, they also keep their channels, and uh, we try to concentrate on uh, Iranian issue. Uh, we, you know, with all due respect to our army and to Israel, at the end of the day, we're a small country, we're not a world power. Our official policy not to interfere in the domestic issues within Syria. Uh, there are enough uh, powers and Security Council and UN and uh, European Union and Arab League, it's uh, their problem not our problem, but uh, what uh, our problem and what we will not allow, uh, it's uh, for Iranians to establish the forward base in Syria against Israel. It's uh, for us clear, we clarified our position here in Washington and also all around the world. I think that there is understanding in Washington to our challenges, to our problems. And uh, we, of course, uh, discussed and we have some uh, more than understandings and we have cooperation. And uh, we really enjoy very, very good relations. At the end of the day, 
in Israel we have only one real strategic alliance, United States, and we appreciate. When do you leave Washington with uh, any confidence uh, or more confidence that the United States will be remaining in Syria, um, uh, um, or do you leave Washington with the sense that, uh, in fact, the United States will be removing its troops from Syria? Um, uh, uh, sometime in the not-too-distant future? To speak frankly, I don't know. It's not uh, our business. I'm not in position to give advice to American administration. But I think that there is understanding to our concern uh, regarding uh, situation in Syria. And more than situation in Syria, it's possibility to, to create a a land bridge from Iran to Syria and Lebanon, or if you want one huge Shia continuity from Iran through Iraq, Syria and Lebanon. And also I think that everybody in Washington understands uh, what it's mean, and uh, we explained our position, and uh, I'm sure that uh, you will take right decisions here. You were quoted just recently saying, quote, we will destroy every state where we see an attempt by Iran to position itself militarily in Syria. We will not allow it at all costs. Now, of course, there are thousands of Iranians and Iranian-backed militias in Syria. What precisely is Israel's red line in Syria? You know, there are many Iranians, but not so many Iranians. I think also there is some misunderstanding regarding Iranian presence in Syria. But what we speak exactly, it's about Iranian military base in every part of Syria. And their military presence we will not allow. If they smuggling drugs or... Uh, have some business or even if they only in a capacity of advisors, it's another story. But to establish some military base, it doesn't matter, air base or navy hub or some uh, base for their ground operations, we will not allow. And I think it's uh, also uh, this position we explain to everybody in the world and we have all political will and determination to protect ourselves. Let me ask you if you could put on your analytical hat for a minute because I think people uh, here and in Israel and elsewhere um, uh, turn to you for special insight into understanding Russian strategy. Um, how do you evaluate what Russia really wants in Syria and what the limits of Russian objectives are? Like, for example, there's a big debate in the United States on the Russian-Iranian relationship. Can we divide Russia from Iran? What do you think the possibilities are here? Also, you know, I don't think that it's... Uh, uh, right approach for me to start with some analysis uh, about Russia. 
But I think what it's uh, important to understand that the Russians, they are uh, very pragmatic players. At the end of the day, they're reasonable guys. It's possible to close deal with them and we understand what their interests and uh, their interests really different from our interests. But we respect, they have their priorities, we have our priorities. We try to avoid direct uh, uh, frictions and tensions. Uh, but uh, they are very pragmatic guys. One of the problems of the Middle East is that you have too many non-pragmatic, not reasonable guys. It's the uh, biggest problem, you know. For people from Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, they are not pragmatic guys, they are really fanatic guys and uh, radical guys. It's a problem. Also, when you, you speak with uh, Arab people from... Uh, and uh, it's a good news from the moderate uh, Sunni states, the first time that they really understand that the threat for them it's not Israel, not Jews, not Zionism, but radical Islamic groups within their society. And first of all, it's the Iranians. It's a real threat for them. And uh, I think that, you know, Russia, like uh, every power in the world, they have their interests. They, you know, it was a Russian political dream from 18th century their presence in the Mediterranean, the first time that they have their uh, navy base in the Mediterranean, they have approached the Mediterranean. And uh, also, it's not our business. We try only to protect our security interests and to keep our security interests. Only one issue that we will never <coughs> compromise, it's our security interests. Does it give you any particular concern that for the first time when you look to the north you see Russian presence and Russian sort of uh, control of, a, of Syria, but the Americans are very far away? Our concern is uh, Iranians, Iranians and Hezbollah. And Iranians and Hezbollah with their ambitions, with... Uh, uh, their readiness to sacrifice their own people. By the way, pragmatic, reasonable guys are not reasonable guys. I think what we're facing with Iran, it's really crazy situation in 21 century. Uh, the Iranians in a very difficult economic situation the problems, the troubles within Iran, the situation with inflation, with their currency. It's a very complicated situation. Still, there is very, very shaky within Iran. And despite all their domestic problems, they continue to be a biggest uh, uh, sponsor of world terror activity. They spent about two billion dollars every year for all this crazy support uh, for terror.
you know, in uh, uh, Lebanon, Hezbollah, Hamas in Jihad Islamic, in Islamic Jihad in Gaza Strip, the Houthi tribes uh, in uh, Yemen, the Shia militias in Iraq. They spent about two billion dollars every year for this adventure. It's crazy with all their own domestic problems. They invested uh, up until now in Syria uh, since uh, uh, this uh, war about 13 billion dollars. And we think that it's the biggest problem that the fanatic religious leadership, they're really crazy, not reasonable, not reasonable. We don't have any problem with Iranian people. Hundreds of years, we enjoyed very close relations. We have a problem with their leadership, ideology. And uh, we hope also one day, as we see today in Korea, in Korea Peninsula, you know, to back to establish uh, good relations with Iranian people, that uh, we will see political change, we will see other uh, leadership, and uh, it's really we don't have any dispute with Iran. But they, their main uh, political goal is to uh, destroy the state of Israel because of fanatic ideology. This actually leads to the next uh, couple of questions I wanted to ask you. You're in Washington in a very auspicious week. You're in good company with the, the president of France and the, the, the chancellor of Germany. Um, they're, of course, here to, um, in part, to convince President Trump to uh, uh, not to withdraw the United States from the Iran nuclear deal. Now, you're quoted as saying, quote, Europe is wrong again in the past the Europeans made a mistake when they signed the Munich Agreement in 38 with Germany. We all know what happened. And you use that analogy to describe the Iran nuclear deal today. So first, there's a great guessing game. What do you think President Trump is going to do? First of all, I completely agree with me again. <laughs> that, uh, it's, uh, I think that the West has grown soft and they lost their political will and determination. And the deal with Iranians, it's something that I cannot understand. Because uh, they know exactly that Iranians, they are cheating the West, that their political goal is not uh, only uh, nuclear energy for peace, but uh, they need uh, in addition for their uh, peaceful nuclear energy, they need the ballistic missiles to spread this uh, uh, peaceful uh, ballistic energy all around the world. And uh, they see the regime, their uh, uh, approach to the minorities, to the freedom of speech, to democracy. They know exactly in the West uh, about funding of terror. You have every uh, State Department annual report about uh, states uh, that they are sponsored the all terror movement in the world and uh, Iran every year on, in the first place is the biggest sponsor of terror. 
and they know everything. They know that uh, in Iran, uh, we saw the last year uh, in parade, the Iranian missile with inscription in Hebrew to wipe out the state of Israel. They deny Holocaust. And despite all of the, these facts, uh, they uh, still very, very supportive to this nuclear deal with Iran. I think it's all, uh, it's first of all our obligation, our commitment as Jews, you know, to remember everything uh, in our history. And uh, Iranians, when they say uh, we will destroy the state of Israel, we can imagine only if they will achieve nuclear weapons. Uh, we can uh, imagine today it's possible to discuss publicly how was the situation if uh, uh, Syria, if Assad succeeded in the, in the past to achieve nuclear uh, bomb. I think it was the same with Saddam Hussein. And uh, I think it's a huge mistake for the West, uh, this agreement, this nuclear deal with Iran. The situation really very, very similar uh, as in uh, 38 between, uh, before Munich Agreement. And exactly as uh, West sacrificed Czechoslovakia, we have very, very, very bad feeling regarding their commitment to our security. And uh, we will not take any chance. Uh, I'm sorry, are, are, are you suggesting that the countries that support the nuclear agreement um, are appeasing Iran and are sacrificing Israel's security I like Czechoslovakia I, I was sacrificed? I think that to pacify Iran, it's mission impossible. It's clear that they understand only the tough language. And uh, all the economic uh, benefits that they achieved from this nuclear deal uh, create an ability for Iran to finance all their activity in Syria to support Hezbollah and Houthi militias. Uh, you should know, I think it's clear, that without Iranian support, not Hezbollah, not uh, Houthi militias, not uh, Hamas, not Islamic Jihad, they're not able to exist even one week. About 80-85% of all their budget include Hezbollah and Houthi militias and the Islamic Jihad comes from uh, Iran. And I think uh, it's really a huge, huge mistake in their understanding. It's a bad message and uh, it's our position. Again, it's not I'm not in position, you know, to give some advice, not to administration. It's completely unnecessary, right. but it's our position. Now, um, is, Israel has suggested that if there is further escalation with Iran because of its presence in Syria, that Iran itself might not be off limits from Israeli retaliation. No, we, I think also reciprocity in our relations in uh, if they uh, will try to hit Tel Aviv 
we will uh, hit back uh, Tehran. I hope that it's uh, really, you know, only horror movie like in uh, uh, like in like in American movie. It's not a reality. Uh, we hope uh, that uh, they will enough smart not to provoke us, not uh, to create uh, a new conflict. I think it's against the uh, interest of people of Iran, and of course uh, we don't have any, uh, you know, ambitions uh, to destroy Iran. What we need, we need security, and we need uh, time and uh, possibility to develop our economy, our science, our technology. Israel is startup nations. We don't have any, you know, uh, like others' ambitions, not in Lebanon, not to come back in Gaza, not in Syria. Please forget about us. We will be happy. All right, if I can, let's, let's turn to, to the situation on the Gaza border, which you spoke about earlier in your remarks. Um, we are um, uh, in the run-up to um, uh, May 15th. Uh, we've seen uh, various levels of border, um, uh, of border conflicts. Um, what do you expect? Um, do you think that there'll be an entirely new uh, level of uh, conflict? And how would you evaluate your own response to dealing with the conflict uh, over the last number of weeks? First of all, I hope that uh, we really uh, avoid a new conflict with uh, people in Gaza. As I mentioned, we don't have any ambitions. Uh, we don't try to come back to Gaza Strip, not to establish uh, their new settlements, nothing. You have your Gaza Strip, please try to concentrate all your efforts to build new society, new uh, entity. It's not our business. But if uh, they will try to provoke uh, us to launch missiles, uh, to damage our sovereignty, uh, to penetrate to Israel, of course. We will do everything to prevent this reality. Can you imagine that somebody will launch a missile on a sovereign American territory? Territory. What will be the response? Or somebody will launch missiles on Russia, on China. What will be their response? We, despite that we withdrew, as we mentioned, until the very last inch, every day we have uh, another, we see another terrorist activity against our people, our uh, sovereignty, our towns, our everything. It's uh, really something uh, unbelievable. And people try to justify that. You know, also, what we see is that they are using their children, their women as a human shield. You will never see the leaders of Hamas on the front line. They are behind the children and women. We try to avoid, uh, you know, 
casualties and uh, to avoid uh, direct clashes, but at the end of the day, we will not allow to jeopardize our security. What is the strategic solution for Gaza? On the one hand, um, uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, doesn't want to move into Gaza until Hamas yields its guns. How is it likely that Hamas will do so? How do you square this circle? Is there a solution out there? Uh, I think the solution is reconstruction for demilitarization. It's uh, my view, my approach. And I think that it's obligation of people to Gaza to topple this uh, fanatic uh, uh, leadership, this fanatic uh, organization to replace with normal people. And, uh, you know, we're ready to, as I mentioned, to create uh, jobs, to, cre to establish industrial zones as it was uh, in the past even to build uh, uh, the infrastructure, electricity, water, uh, hub for the Gaza people, everything. <coughs> but we need a, a clear understanding that uh, they gave up uh, their intention to destroy the state of, the state of Israel, that they changed, they will uh, cancel all paragraphs that they have in their uh, charter about uh, our right to exist, that they will accept the quartet uh, uh, demands to recognize Israel and uh, demilitarization. It's impossible that uh, they invest all their money in uh, a military wing and uh, they complain that they in difficult economic situation. The Hamas military wing budget in the, in the last year was $260 million. Instead, to invest those money in uh, healthcare and education, they invested uh, against Israel. Demilitarization for reconstruction. Yeah. It's only one approach. Let me turn to the West Bank for a moment. As Minister of Defense, you're, of course, responsible for, for the West Bank. Um, there is no publicly active peace process at the moment, but yet the West Bank is relatively not quiet. Not peace and not process. Fair enough. Yet the West Bank is relatively quiet. Um, can you say a few words about uh, security cooperation, your relationship with the Palestinian Authority, how things are actually operating relatively quietly on the ground. First of all, I think that uh, uh, we must ask another question. Why we're still in the deadlock with the Palestinians, despite that we signed, uh, signed the Nosla Accord 25 years ago? 25. I think 25 years 25. ago. And uh, to speak frankly, I am very bad guy. I am right wing. I am a settler. I am a Russian guy with birth. 
And it's a very right-wing government today in Israel. The question, why we failed to achieve some agreement, even some strategic breakthrough with the Palestinians during 25 years. And we remember that uh, we had very Davish governments, including Ehud Barak and Tsipi Livni and Ehud Dulmert and Arik Sharon. We remember the meetings in Camp David, uh, Barak with Arafat and uh, Ehud Dulmert and Tsipi Livni with Mahmoud Abbas in Annapolis. And uh, the question why we failed. You know, it's uh, the biggest uh, issue. And I think that uh, the, uh, at least in my understanding, the problem that the real uh, dispute, it's not between us and the Palestinians, but between us and the Arab world. And the Arab world has three different dimensions. It's our relations with the Arab states, it's our relations with the Palestinians, and our relations with Israeli Arabs. And it's uh, crucial to resolve in the same time, in the same time, simultaneously, all our problems with the Arab world, not with the Palestinians. Palestinians alone, they're not able to sign the final status agreement. They're really featherweight, not heavyweight. And they don't have capacity. And to speak frankly, Palestinian authority doesn't exist. De facto, you have two different entities. You have Fatah land in Judea and Samaria. You have Hamastan in Gaza Strip. The elections to the Palestinian Authority were supposed to be held in January 2010. And I'm not sure that Mahmoud Abbas, even according to their constitution, has legitimate right to sign any agreement on behalf of Palestinian people. But even with all these problems, I remember what uh, Eo Dulmert offered in Annapolis. To, again, I was shocked when I saw. It was uh, maybe the most uh, generous offer that it's only possible from Israeli side. And despite uh, this offer, Mahmoud Awas at the end of the day said no. And he refused to sign a uh, final status agreement. And it's only another illustration that uh, uh, in this bilateral framework, it's impossible to achieve a real solution with the Palestinians. It should be a part of the regional comprehensive solution. We should sign with the Arab League, with the Palestinians, and to find the solution for the Israeli Arabs that the uh, biggest part of them identify themselves as uh, Palestinians. And I think it's also, it's very, very crucial. And it's the uh, biggest issue to continue the same things and to hope that uh, 
result will be different result. I think it's naive approach as uh, Albert Einstein explained in the past. And it's politically correct to say naive approach. Your opening remark though, when you stood at this podium was, real peace is an illusion. I think as I said, it's a solution, it's not peace. For peace, you need real two democratic societies. You need strong middle class. And why the Georgia and Samaria are relatively it's quiet? Because the economic situation much better than in Gaza Strip. In thanks only to our efforts. Because uh, Mahmoud Abbas, he visited Washington 10 times more than Hebron or Jenin. He really uh, has no interest to establish strong economy. He doesn't uh, worry about prosperity in uh, Palestinian authority. He only speaks, you know, like revolutionaries in slogans. Independent state, for independent state, you need capacity, you need the economy, you need jobs, you need education. It's not enough only the declaration, independence. Independence costs a lot of money. And I think that uh, their efforts, first of all, they should invest all their uh, efforts to create a really strong economy. So then I have to ask you this question. Uh, it, is very, it is very common, um, one hears it, one has heard it for, for years from various um, uh, political leaders here and in Israel and elsewhere, that the current situation is, quote, unsustainable. Is it, in fact, very sustainable? Not, you know, in the Middle East is Middle East. Everything includes our neighbors and our problems. Everything is very shaky, unsustainable, and uh, unpredictable. It's uh, maybe more right uh, vision. It's everything unpredictable. We don't know what will be uh, with Gaza. We don't know what the future of... Uh, Palestinians in Judea and Samaria, what happens uh, in uh, with Arab League. You know, the problem is that everything in the Middle East, it's, ra it's like connected vessels. And you see what happens with the leaders of the Arab world. What we saw in Arabia, in Yemen, with the Emirates, uh, the Sinai, Egypt, with all problems of Islamic State. And to hope that it's possible only in this uh, small part of the Middle East, Israel and Palestinians to achieve uh, real stable peace like uh, France and Germany, France and Italy, or Switzerland and Italy. It's uh, also it's a very, very naive, really naive approach. We need to achieve this uh, strategic breakthrough with our world, strong leadership. You know, when Sadat visited the first time Jerusalem, it's really from both sides, we saw very strong, very charismatic leaders with huge support within society, begging Sadat. Uh, 112 members of Knesset voted and supported this agreement between Israel and uh, Egypt. I don't remember any other 
vote with uh, so huge majority, 112 people, and it reflected the, the support that uh, Begin had uh, from all people of Israel. Do you think that the, uh, the new leadership in Saudi Arabia is the 21st century Sadat? I don't know, uh, to speak frankly. We hope that it's a moderate, modern uh, leadership and they will lead real modernization and open approach to our problems also. But it's crucial for them also, not only for Israel. This uh, regional solution, and I speak many years about, and I really believe in regional solution, it will change all Middle East, first of all, the Arab world. You know, we, uh, Israel is a startup nation with a strong uh, uh, economy, with uh, science, with everything. The combination between us, startup nation, and their financial uh, uh, power, together combination of our uh, mutual efforts will change all Middle East in on both levels economy and of course security and I think it's their interest uh, like us not uh, less we're um, we're running out of time I, I can't let you go without at least asking a couple of political questions I hope you don't mind um, so do you think your coalition will stay the full term, or do you see early elections coming? I think it's maybe most stable coalitions that I only remember. I don't see any interest uh, within coalition among uh, all uh, parties for earlier elections. I don't see elections before uh, next year. Maybe it will be, you know, some months before, but uh, it's really very, very stable coalition, and I don't see uh, earlier elections before 19. So you have served, as I said earlier, you've served in, I'm not going to say every, but almost every senior position in an Israeli government, except one. Can we imagine you being a candidate for prime minister? Uh, I thought that you... Ask if I uh, want to be a minister of culture or sport. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but uh, I think that I really uh, served uh, our country in many, many positions and many capacities. As all politicians, I try my best, but I'm not crazy. You know, in politics, there are, I, I remember what Rabin explains there are people in politics that for them it's everything and there are people that for them it's only an option for me it's only an option i really enjoy this uh, job this capacity it's a huge responsibility and uh, i feel really very very good in this position and uh, who knows what will be in the future Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Minister of Defense, Avigdor Lieberman. This has been Near East Policy Cast from the Washington Institute. 
For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.